Greetings. We hope you enjoy this podcast of a Science for the Public program. If you'd like to see the video of this program, just search the title on our website under the Archives tab at the top of the homepage, www.scienceforthepublic.org. Hello, I'm Yvonne Stapp for Science for the Public, and I welcome you to our Contemporary Science Issues and Innovations program. The sharp decline in honeybees has alarmed farmers and scientists, but the decline is affecting wild bees also. Today we learn about the complicated relationship between wild bees and their food sources. More precisely, we look at the comprehensive environment that affects bee health. Our guest via Skype is Professor Lynn Adler, Professor of Biology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Dr. Adler is a widely recognized expert on the interdependence of insects and their environments, in this case, bumblebees, and how that relationship affects bee health and adaptation. Dr. Adler, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We hear in the media all the time about the decline of honeybees, but you focused a lot on wild bees as well. And so we've come around to some very interesting discoveries. This problem of the decline, is it affecting wild bees and bumblebees included also? I would say generally, Yes. Um, I, as a scientist, you tend to be a little bit cautious about making broad <laughs> statements, of That's course. Right. And um, I think people often don't realize what a big question that is, yeah. what an incredible diversity of bees there are. So it's estimated that in North America alone, there's around 4,000, 4,500 species of bees. Yeah. You know, the honeybee is one, right. Western right. honeybee is one species. Uh, worldwide, there's thought to be around 20,000. So for an awful lot of bees, there just aren't any data uh -huh. one way or the other um but when people do look um there seems to be pretty widespread support for the idea that certainly several bee species are in decline not all i think some of the best data sets out there are ones that compare historical records uh -huh. uh, sort of wide insect collections to them what you can find in the same site now most of those have focused on europe and north america but yeah. it seems like usually people find that around half of the bee species are declining there's often many species that we can no longer find that were present 50 or 100 years ago yeah. um, some species are doing really well and filling into those gaps that are being lost um, through other species disappearing but it generally looks like diversity of bees is going down and certainly there's many species that are declining and some that are threatened or extinct yeah. uh, and again on just general background how does a decline, if it's significant, affect the whole ecological system in which these bees are found? Uh, it's a fantastic question, um, and it's a complicated one. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So I think the things that make it complicated are that every system's going to be a little bit different. Yeah. It's not like you can make one specific uh, generalization. Sure, sure. And that often the factors that are causing bee declines may be having other impacts. Uh -huh. on plants as well. So to isolate out and say, if we just took the bees away, this is what we're going to see, or we just took the pollinators right, away, right. it's hard to disassociate from some of those other factors. That said, um, 
the vast majority of flowering plants are reliant on animal pollination. Yeah. Um, so lose, losing animal pollinators is going to impact um, an awful lot of species. Some a, a typical characteristic of plant pollinator networks is an asymmetry that's kind of interesting. So there'll be a plant that is um, highly specialized that only one pollinator visits oh, that yes. plant. Yeah. But often that pollinator visits 10 other plants as well. Uh-huh. Um, so that the loss of that pollinator might impact that one plant that's a specialist right. on it. It may not impact some of the other plants that have more generalist pollinators as well. Or there'll be one pollinator that's very, very specialized to one plant, but that plant is also visited by many other species. Yes. So, um, but some studies that have looked at sort of, again, historical records of interactions, what pollinators were recorded on which plants and can compare, there's a study from Illinois that compared historical records to current time, finds many sort of losses of interactions, that there's less nestedness, there's less, there's fewer linkages, fewer connections right. these days that are generally attributed to loss of, of pollinators in the network. and. Some studies suggest that networks can be resilient to losses of certain species, but it may depend on which species and how, what the extent of loss is that we're talking about. Right. Well, uh, I asked you all of this because your whole thing is the complexity, <laughs> you know, that you look at the so, entire system and, and appreciate your bringing that out because I think in general, we non-experts think of the flowers or the bees or the birds or the something or other, but don't see it as a tightly integrated system. And sometimes the loss of one piece of that system is disastrous to the system, but other times not. And I but think that's like not. your yeah. your, your yeah. point. And there's also and, such a bias too in the way that we focus our data. There's so much data about honeybees. Yes. There's a reasonable amount of data about bumblebees. Yeah. There's a real lack of data about most of the other bees out there that are solitary. And then, of course, there's many other pollinators or certain groups that get attention and a geographic bias as well. So right. quite a lot of research in Europe and in North America, um, some in Asia, less in Africa, less in South America with some exceptions. Um, there's certain areas, Central America. So there's it's hard to make sweeping generalizations because there are so many biases in the way that we collect data, both in terms of what species we focus on and what, what geographic regions I as well. I understand, I understand. Now, are there diseases or, you're like, what, what should I say, from bacteria or viruses? Are there any sort of diseases that are of interest to you or that are prevalent that need the attention? Well, what's of interest to me specifically, uh, <laughs> maybe slightly different, I mean, certainly, in the honeybee world, I think um, varroa mite and deformed wing virus are still the, kind of the number one issues that, that beekeepers are dealing with, but there are a panoply of other issues as well and some emerging viruses. Um, in bumblebees, it looks like Nosema has really been implicated as being involved. Um, some of the bumblebee species in North America that seem to be declining the most seem to be those that have the highest frequency of Nosema or um, are most susceptible to Nosema. I, the, the pathogen that I've been working with the most is called Crithidia. It's, it doesn't yeah. have a good common name. It's a trypanosome or trypanosomatid. It's um, related to diseases that cause Chagas disease or leishmaniasis and African sleeping sickness in humans. Oh, so how interesting. Kind of that, yeah. that pathogen group. It's, it's an interesting one because it is not necessarily 
by any means the most lethal of pathogens out there. Nosema is, is far more associated with declines and with um, impacts. Clithidia, though, does shorten lifespan, reduce the ability of bumblebee queens to found colonies, it impairs learning, um, and it's incredibly prevalent. So again, we, it, that varies with region, but it happens that where I live in Western Massachusetts, in some years we can find Crithidia in up to 80% of the bumblebees. Wow. Um, by the end of the season, exactly. It's not always that high, not at every right. site, and not in every year, but it's quite common. Um, and often when people study it in the lab, they don't see big impacts. It seems that when bees are getting enough nutrition, Crithidia may not be an enormous stressor, but when bees are not getting enough food resources, when they're more starved, when they have to forage, when they're, they're under sort of more natural conditions that we right. might not see in the lab, um, there have been studies showing that Crithidia can have a much bigger impact under those conditions. I see. Uh, you point out that there may be unusual hunger. Is that possibly caused by the prevalence just spread out of these sprays that have been of interest. Is that yes. is that something that you're concerned with? You don't as as a cause that causes them the bees in general to be weakened. There are, I think, that issues with bee decline, like issues with maybe many species declines, are caused by a multitude of stressors, and yeah. that's the combinations that can be so problematic. People talk about bee declines being due to the four Ps. They yes. say uh, parasites, yeah. pathogens, yes. um, pesticides, and poor nutrition. Yeah. And it really can be this sort of the, the compounding effects of these of things. Course. So you might be able to sort of resist a pathogen if you've got enough to eat. And yes. if you're not exposed to any chemicals, but there have been several studies and pesticides, again, depending on the pesticide, right, the dose, right. they can have direct impacts, but they can also have these sublethal impacts where they may make bees more susceptible to parasites or less good at foraging so that then they're not getting enough food right. or not having enough food can affect your immune system. So you're not as good at fighting off diseases. So there's definitely these combinations. And as far as exposure, there are plenty of bees that forage in agricultural landscapes, so certainly high on the list of, of potential factors contributing to declines is land use change and agricultural yeah. intensification, that's sort of removing a diversity of floral resources, yes. yeah. intensifying them, um, but also is kind of the rise of use in chemical pesticides and exposure from that. It seems like there's a lot of factors at play. Right, I have seen a recent study with the, the seems to indicate that wild bees foraging near where these uh, agricultural fields are, are seem to be more susceptible, but it may be early days for really making that connection, and I respect your uh, concern mm -hmm. for the complexity there, that, that it's, you, just, you can't just single something out very quickly. Right. And, but, and we found, oh, I'm sorry. Go right ahead. Oh, just that we've even found some surprising results um, so a, a colleague, a former postdoc of mine, Scott McCart, um, we, um, some colleagues shared a data set of a survey of, of bumblebees, um, bumblebee abundance and um, pathogen loads 
across all of North America that had already been published, but they gave us access to that data set, and we reanalyzed it looking at sort of putting in a whole lot of factors that yeah. might be associated with declines, kind yeah. of a kitchen sink approach. And yeah, yeah. Scott McCart really led this and used machine learning techniques to try to say, okay, if we throw these all of these different potential predictors into this model, which ones fall out as being sort of most predictive yeah. of which species are declining? Um, and what surprised us is that what fell out the most actually was fungicide use. Yeah. Um, and, and chlorothalonil in particular, a fungicide. So you'd think that insecticides, yes. because they're designed to kill insects, would have the biggest right. impact. And in some cases, that may be the case. But there's more and more studies linking fungicides actually to be declines as well. And um, the European Union recently banned chlorothalonil. Yeah, um, yeah, saw that. I think based on that leading to other studies that sort of looked more closely at these classes of pesticides that maybe hadn't been thought of as initially as, as the ones that might be a cause for concern. I see. Now, I want, I'd like to go back to that nutrition business, the, the bees okay. being weakened for not, they're hungry or they're, they don't have the correct balance of nutrition or if that's the case. But mm -hmm. in general, is this unusual to see wild bees having this problem since if assuming that they have access to lots of different plants or plants of their liking? <laughs> is that the case that this is? No, I think that that okay. land use change and loss of habitat uh -huh. has really resulted in a okay. change of of what floral resources are available. Um, and you know, it's interesting. Things like bumblebees are flying throughout much of the summer season. There's an awful lot of wild bee species that may have a week or two uh -huh. that's their whole time as adults, and that's when all of their foraging I happens. See. And, I and see. so their particular forage isn't there at that time then that is a really challenging issue. Exactly. Uh, climate change ties into all of this too, mismatches between yeah. when insects are emerging and when their host plants are available. Yes, um, is yes. another thing that's coming into play. So again, for bumblebees, the challenge is that you need a series of resources over the course of the whole I summer because they're developing brood and they're going on. Uh -huh. But the flip side is for bees that have a very limited foraging period, if there aren't resources available at that time, that that can be a real issue actually um, and as sort of wildlands and meadows get converted into intense agriculture or into houses yeah <laughs> um, right that can really change the resource landscape sometimes it improves it um, some suburban areas and gardens um, can provide can be resource rich areas but right. often um, there's sort of a decline in resources okay available. so part of that is the way that we're using the land now it's not the variety yes. maybe the, the natural variety that has come about now then in terms of these diseases are they transmitted like from the hun like the honeybee population to the bumblebee population do they uh, exchange diseases viruses and stuff as they, they land on different plants there's an increasing evidence um, showing sort of transfer of diseases okay. from commercial honeybees to wild bee populations, um, and even things that maybe 10 years ago we didn't realize bumblebees could get, um, oh. or we didn't realize would replicate in bumblebees that people are now finding sort of deformed wing virus is you know, was thought of as a honeybee disease, but now we realize that it can infect bumblebees as well um, impact them. And there's been some really, there was a very nice recent study. I think you're thinking of that 
showed um, what was it deformed wing virus and, and um, uh, black queen cell virus that was, both were yeah. um, that that bumblebees were more likely to be infected when they were near commercial honeybee apiaries. But what was interesting about that study also was that they only found the viruses present on flowers that were near apiaries yeah. and not on flower samples that were far away from apiaries. So yes. what was exciting about that study was suggesting flowers as a potential mechanism by which transfer occurs, which is something yeah. that I'm interested in and I that there bet. isn't a lot yes. of work right, on. Right, right, right. So that location and that variety of, of flower of, uh, is, is an important thing. Then you have, I thought, uh, your work was interesting that there are some of these nectars that are actually medicinal. Uh, it looked like, is that from the sunflowers? Am I correct on that something about sunflowers that makes you want to go out and sip some sunflowers <laughs> that they appear to have a medicinal quality for the bees is that true would it be okay if i gave a little bit of background on that please do <laughs> okay. so i didn't come at this from um a conservation perspective yeah. i guess i would say i'm a basic I'm just interested in plant-insect interactions. Yeah. Uh, I have a longtime collaborator, Rebecca Irwin, who's at uh, North Carolina State University, mm -hmm. and she's a collaborator on all of the work that I would be talking about here. And we started out, um, I, I'm honestly a little bit more of a plant ecologist than mm -hmm. an insect biologist, and um, I've always been fascinated by traits that might mediate interactions in ways that we don't expect. Mm -hmm. um, and when people think about chemical defenses that plants make, they usually think about it in the context of deterring deterring things that might eat those plants, mm -hmm. uh, deterring pests. And that's kind of where my background came from. Um, more and more people have realized that a lot of these chemicals are actually present in flowers and present in nectar and present in pollen. And um, we started by studying this from the plant point of view, what what might be the role of those compounds? How might they impact plant reproduction through changing effects on pollinators? Mm -hmm. As um, there started to be more and more concern about um, declines in pollinators and, and pathogens being part of the issue there and parasites, um, we started to think about the role that those floral rewards and the chemistry of floral rewards might play for pollinator health. Mm -hmm. And the neat thing is that uh, for people who study animals that eat plants, herbivores, people have known for a long time that these chemicals that plants make can can keep animals from eating plants, can be poisonous, but yeah. in small doses can be medicinal. Right? Yes. I mean, people exploit that all of the time. The vast right. majority of our medicines come yeah, from- Yeah, exactly, all over the world, right, plants. yeah. And there's lots and lots of literature in the plant-herbivore interaction world about plant chemical defenses, moving up through the food chain and helping mm -hmm. to protect herbivores mm -hmm. against their own um, predators, their own parasites, their mm -hmm. own diseases. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't something people were thinking about for pollinators, uh -huh. that, that, that they're getting exposed to these chemicals too through consuming nectar and pollen, right. and that that might have some impact on their own health. Right. Becky and I started out um, looking at chemical defenses that were in nectar and um, infecting bumblebees with cryptidia and then feeding them sugar solutions that did or did not have these compounds. Yes. And we initially found that a whole range of compounds could reduce cryptidia at naturally occurring concentrations. Um, subsequently, we found that that wasn't always the case. Those, those results were not always consistent. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. And we started thinking that maybe we were missing the boat 
by not thinking about pollen. That's yeah. like often how science goes is you try one thing and yeah. it doesn't always go the way that you expect and um, you start thinking like maybe I'm not really thinking about the whole picture here because yeah. you, pollen is, in, is the source of protein and lipids. And, um, and from a plant point of view, it makes sense to defend your pollen, right? Pollen right. Is, yeah. is the male, is sperm, it's male right. gametes. Right. Um, you don't really want your pollen to get eaten. You right. want it to get moved to another plant. Yeah. Um, to anthropomorphize the plant point of view. So we just we it was an undergraduate experiment. We said let's do the same kind of thing, but just try some different kinds of pollen. Um, there weren't that many options of what was available. We chose a few different kinds that we thought might have interesting chemistry, and we just infected these and then fed them some different kinds of pollen and looked to see what was happening. And and this amazing undergraduate, Jonathan Giacomini, who's now a PhD student with Becky, after a while I said, how's it going? And he said, this is just so weird. You know, when the, when the bees are fed sunflower pollen, they just really don't have crithidia after a week. Oh, isn't um, that interesting? It, it was so dramatic. It was yeah. so different from anything we'd seen with nectar. And yeah, two thirds of the bees just didn't have a detectable infection, you know, after we'd infected them, you know, after one week. Yeah. And, and the bees that did the the infections were incredibly low. Um, unlike our nectar results, that has turned out to be quite consistent. We've done it with yeah. many different varieties of sunflower now. Um, a former master student of mine, George Locasio, even found that goldenrod pollen seemed to reduce so it, which is different a plants. Yeah, yeah. Only. Um, we found that if we collected bees from farms just locally around Amherst, where I live. Um, and you know, where we hadn't controlled anything about the bumblebees, but uh, just collected them, brought them back to the lab and dissected them. There's a lot of variation, but farms that had more sunflower had lower lower um, prevalence of infection. So that made us think that there was the potential here both to try to develop sunflower supplements yes. um, that might be used as a non-chemical way of managing disease and maybe work with sunflower plantings. The really cool thing about sunflower is that it's both an agricultural crop and it's a native plant to North yeah, America yeah. so that it had the potential maybe to be incorporated into sort of pollinator habitat, pollinator plantings, both in agro ecosystems and in some places in wild habitat as well. Yes. The, the caution of this, like the, the caveats, because I have to give the caveats, is that so far we've mostly just worked with Cryptidia. We did find some results at sunflower pollen reduced nosema in honeybees um, and even to form wing virus, but they're not always repeatable. Yes, um, at well, point, yeah. we've done we've done sunflower supplementation in the springtime to honeybee colonies and didn't find a big impact on um, on disease or performance of those colonies. We're going to do it in the fall as well, which is more typically when yeah. beekeepers will supplement. So we're we're in the middle yes. of doing this. Um, we are working this summer, we're going to be putting bumblebee colonies out at farms that vary in how much sunflower they're growing so we can look at more pathogens yes. and also look at the performance of the colonies. One of the interesting things about sunflower is that it's nutritionally not that great. It's oh, pretty low protein. Yeah, it's pretty oh. low protein and it seems to really be an issue for honeybees. Bumblebees seem to handle it better, but not great. So it's not like the solution should be that everything should be sunflower. Like I see, not, I see. That's not anything we would ever advocate for. So we've been trying to look at the conditions under which, like, 
how much of a dose, the timing of the dose, having it as in how much do you need in the mix? Because I think it is important to think about nutritional balance as well. Yes. Um, And and so the bees like to have that variety, a diet that is more varied, that it might be important in this respect as well. I have to ask, back to the honeybees for just a minute here, that uh, I understood that the honeybees are not really getting a normal diet. Is that correct? That is these agricultural bees that are carted from one huge farm to another. I'm not an expert. Yeah, I understand. I I don't want to pretend to be. Right. But that is my understanding as well that for migratory beekeeping, that that's a real challenge. You know, you get get brought to the almond field in California in January and February, and it's miles upon miles upon miles of nothing but almond pollen, and then you get brought you, know, you do the tomatoes, you do the watermelons, you do these different, and that having that sequential availability. I mean, honeybees are capable of storing pollen, so yeah. just because that's what they're exposed to at that moment doesn't right. mean it's the only thing they have. But that that you can imagine that that would be a nutritional challenge for almost anyone to have well, only one food. Exactly. When honeybees, you know, they have some essential amino acids that they need um, that some pollens can't provide. That's one of the issues with sunflower pollen. So that having a diversity is important. And um, there can be a practice sort of during the winter months of providing sucrose or providing yeah. um, corn syrup supplements and um, some really nice work by um, May Berenbaum and colleagues a while ago found that there are some components of pollen that are sort of necessary for bees to upregulate immune function or detoxification enzymes. So if you're not, so that eating pollen actually provides some of the things that you need to be able to fight off pathogens or detoxify pesticides. Yes. And if you're get, not getting pollen in your diet, that that you can be missing some of the factors that, that actually help you be more resilient to, to disease and pesticides. Yes, it's very interesting. It seems like this applies to creatures of all types in, in the end, you know, having that balanced diet, so to speak. <laughs> but in our last few minutes, I'd just like to ask you about how you do your work. Like uh, when you, you have to go out into the field and uh, gather this kind of information, it just seems like it must be rather complex. Can you just give us an idea? We just have a few minutes left, but I'd love to know more about how you do it. Okay. Um, we do a variety of lab experiments and field experiments. Oh, that's right. um, so some of our work with the bumblebees is relatively straightforward. We can do it in the lab um, and work with commercial colonies. Sometimes we can infect bees. We maintain an infection in the lab that we can use to make inoculum. So we Uh can inoculate bees, assign them to different diets or different conditions, and then look at the impact. Um, Personally, I think the field work is more fun. I think I sort of enjoy (laughs) some of the complexity. So our sunflower work, that's taking place on farms this summer, for example. We're working with 24 different growers that vary in how much sunflower they'll be having on their farms from none to many, many acres. Well, typically one to three acres here, but one with 50 acres. Um, We will actually be deploying, starting next week, bumblebee colonies at these sites. Um, and then returning to them on a regular basis, we will want to be collecting foraging bees as they come back to the colony. So sort of catching them, grabbing them, um, collecting their pollen load to see what they're actually collecting. So just because there's sunflower there doesn't necessarily mean that the bees are using it. Right. Um, 
And then also um, we will be dissecting bees to look at what pathogens we can see under a scope. And we work with a molecular collaborator, Quinn McFrederick, who will be looking for um, sort of molecular signals of disease so we can look at whether sunflower um, growth is correlated with more than just crithidia. We can greatly expand that. And we'll be weighing the colonies as the best way to sort of look at how the colonies are developing over the course of the season so we can see if more sunflower if it helps you fight off pathogens, but the colonies don't do well um, due to nutritional issues, that's kind of a problem. So there's a, yeah. and we'll also be measuring all the other floral resources at these farms, and that's been a big conversation, as you yeah. can probably imagine, about the best way to do that. I, I you know, guess I'm wondering about that, but how you get around to see what they're looking we at. We have a lot of conversations yeah, about how right. to do that, and I would say there's. People think of science and art as such different disciplines, but oh, I no. feel like right. they're very they're, related. I mean, they're both absolutely. very creative, and they both involve, um, yeah, having a real instinct or sense yes. um, about how to go about measuring something that's yes. hard to measure. Um, right. They're very collaborative, so we often have you know several people in the room talking about, well, should we do it like this? Should we try yeah. it like this? And yeah. you make your plan ahead of time, and then you go out to the first farm and say, well, that's not going to work. Right. Um, and you you revise. Right. You, that's you, the so science part where you're always revising, right? <laughs> of course. While trying course. to keep your question yeah. in mind, trying right. not to get lost, right. or, okay, this is the goal. Yeah. Um, my PhD advisor, I used to come to him, I'm not sure if I should do it this way or I should do it this way. <laughs> and he would say, what's your question? Exactly. Um, you uh, yeah. this, this is the best way to answer that. If what you really want to know is that, this is the best way to answer that. And sort of that that art of really thinking about how to define your methods so that you best get the answer to the question that you're excited to ask. And it's, it's different for every study, but I think that's what makes it so interesting. And it is interesting indeed. And we really appreciate this wonderful information. You've opened up a whole bunch of things for us there, but the, uh, this is your work with its comprehensive perspective and approach and stuff is very exciting. I wish you the very best of luck. We'll read more about it in the future, I'm sure. But I uh, appreciate your sharing it, this information with the general public very much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of a Science for the Public event. Please check out our website, www.scienceforthepublic.org, for videos of all our events, lists of upcoming events, our weekly Sci News Roundup newsletter, and timely science information.